Hello and welcome to the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I am chair of the Couple and Family Therapy Program at Antioch University, Seattle, and I'm also a licensed psychotherapist. Today it's just me. It's uh, again a part of our daily podcast pledge drive for January. If you haven't become a patron of the pod- podcast, please do so today because we want as many people to become patrons. Not only do you get access to our exclusive episodes, but you also know that part of your monthly pledge goes toward some of the charities that we support uh, to help the homeless and uh, other sorts of uh, other sorts of things. <laughs> and also know that by supporting the podcast, you are uh, helping us to pay for the time that we spend on it and. If we get enough of you to do it, then we'll do daily podcasts all the time instead of just occasionally. All right, so I just thought I'd read some emails here. We have one here from Elizabeth. Hi, Dr. Honda. Thank you for, thank you for your daily podcasts. Uh, I listen to your show daily anyway, but I love hearing the most recent updates. You guys really work hard at this podcast, so I am upping my pledge to $10 per month. I want to pay you guys more than Netflix or Hulu because you deserve it. Smiley face. <laughs> because you deserve it. Oh, that's very nice of you. All right. I just listened to the fearful transference episode and had a quick question about the theory of psychodynamic therapy as a way of establishing trust for potentially the first time in someone's life. What would you say to someone who responds, but since you're paying a therapist to be that stable person for you, it doesn't necessarily mean that they would be stable or trusting if they weren't getting paid to do so, unquote. Do you think this idea ever gets in the way of the corrective experience? Sometimes I have a hard time knowing what my therapist really thinks when she gives me feedback, and maybe the point is that it doesn't matter what her true opinions are about my situation, but what matters is what she says. That's probably just my transference getting in the way, smiley face. So, patron Elizabeth here is bringing up a a very subtle but important point in the therapeutic relationship. She is saying, you know, I often talk about the importance of the relationship and the importance of a corrective emotional experience to be internalized by the client through the relationship between therapist and client as a corrective experience for their psyche or their personality. And that it needs to be real. Their relationship needs to be real. It can't be surface. It has to be deep. But then she goes on to say, well, some people might say that's impossible because how could the relationship be meaningful and deep when the client pays the therapist to even talk to them? And the therapist would never even talk to you unless you paid them. Well, this is an interesting question. And... Uh, what I'll say is I could talk about this forever, but I won't. I'll try to limit my my talk about this. But yeah, a corrective experience, one, doesn't have to involve a therapist. You can have a corrective emotional experience with anybody, and you're having them all the time, hopefully, with uh, healthy relationships in your life. Having said that, yeah, the relationship with a therapist often does involve the necessary payment of the therapist to provide that therapy. 
And this can interfere sometimes with the relationship. I've had some clients who will take issue with that. They'll say, well, you know, you don't really care, do you? Because I'm paying you and and you don't really care. Well, if I just sat there and held out my hand and said, I'm only talking to you unless you put a dollar in my hand every second, (laughs) then, you know, that'd be one thing. But it's it's not like that. It's it's it is something that I get paid to do. But very quickly after the exchange of money is out of the way, it, then I quickly put that aside and become very real with people. Just because I was paid for it and I know I'm being paid for it doesn't mean that I'm not a human being and doesn't mean that my client is not special to me. It doesn't mean that I don't deeply care about my client. and doesn't mean that my client doesn't deeply care about our relationship. Yes, it is paid for, but it doesn't, it doesn't negate the realness of the situation. But it can't be denied that the money is a part of that. And uh, to some extent, I try to deal with that in, in various ways. As a practice, what I do with, with money with, with most of my clients is, one, uh, I have them pay at the end so that it doesn't seem to uh, get in the way of our talk right from the start. Because oftentimes clients come in the door and the, they have a lot of things to say right off the bat. And also, for, some, for many clients, they use medical insurance. And for those clients, I send claims to the, to the medical insurance. And then when I get money from the insurance company, it will indicate a certain amount of copay that the client owes. And then I send a bill to the client in the mail. So for some clients, we never actually in-person exchange any kind of funds. So there's that too. So for some of my clients, there's, there's never any direct dealing of, of money. So, again, I could go on and on about the money aspect of, of being in private practice, but I won't. But Patron Elizabeth brings up a wonderful uh, part of this. Patron Elizabeth also goes on to say that she has a hard time knowing what her therapist really thinks when she gives feedback and that her transference might be getting in the way. And this is true. The, uh, the, the issue here is that as the relationship deepens and becomes more important to both the therapist and the client, the client is naturally going to have more anxiety about what the therapist thinks about them and what the therapist is truly thinking. And this is when therapy becomes very rich because... If the therapist and client manage it well enough, the relationship can be discussed, and the re- and the the elements that the ther- that the client is bringing up can be discussed and worked through. The client can say, you know, sometimes when you give me feedback, I wonder if you're actually being sincere, or I wonder if you don't have some sort of ulterior motive, or I wonder if behind all of this, there's some kind of, I don't know, some kind of agenda, or, or maybe you don't like me, or this sort of thing. These kinds of bringing it out into the open provide such a rich environment upon which 
corrective experiences can can be can be produced. The therapist can listen to that and respect it and and say, "You know what? Actually, you're right. Sometimes I do have an agenda and I should stop that. I should not be that way." This is both a psychodynamic relational way of approaching therapy. It's also associated with what they call humanistic psychology, being in the now, being authentic, having a positive regard, being collaborative with your client, not being standoffish and having a secret agenda that you hide from your clients. These can all be ex- wonderful experiences to have in therapy. And again, as I have talked about many, many times, it it experientially helps the client to feel that they have a voice, to feel that they can say uh, what's on their mind, even if it's not uh, entirely understood by the client, that the client can uh, even criticize the therapist and not be rejected and not have that destroy the relationship. These are very important experiences to have and very corrective for people. Okay, let's read another email, shall we? Here's an email from patron Anne. She says, just signed up as a patron, having only discovered you guys a few hours ago. Brilliant work. I'm a first-year trainee psychologist based in London, soon to be seeing my first patron. My first patient. <laughs> Sorry. Seeing my first patient. Uh, using a psychodynamic model of therapy. Of therapy. Your podcast on why therapists become therapists was so illuminating. I think I might secretly like the prestige too. Thank you. P.S. I'm not sure that you have, but I'd love to hear an episode on on existential or transpersonal psychotherapy. Yeah, I've added those to the list of potential future episodes. And she brings up an interesting point here that she thinks she might secretly like the prestige too. In the episode in which I talk about why therapists become therapists, if I remember right, I talked about how I became a therapist, and I think others do too, partially for for many, many reasons. But but one of the reasons is because of the prestige of, of the profession. We in our society have a ranking of different professions and Therapists and psychologists and counselors are held up pretty high. They're perhaps not as high as heart surgeons or even physicians, but they're held up in a, it is on a similar pedestal. When you walk into a cocktail party and you say you're a therapist, it, it holds a certain amount of uh, cultural respect. And I can't deny uh, that, that that didn't appeal to me when I was a 24-year-old nobody in a three-piece suit driving in Bellevue. All right, let's read another email here. Hey, Kirk, just listened to the podcast. Good job. It was very therapeutic for me, actually. I cried, the good kind of crying, not the traumatized, ugly kind, if that makes any sense. So this is a patron that listened to the episode on, uh, I can't remember which one, <laughs> one of one of the recent episodes, and she's maybe I was responding to something she was saying. Uh, that's what I'm guessing. And she said she actually cried when she listened to it. 
So uh, uh, that makes me feel quite good. Not because you're crying, but because I apparently spoke uh, enough to the issue to um, connect with you. As I've talked about in other episodes before, I often try to imagine myself talking directly to human beings. Because right now I'm in a room by myself. My cats are here, but it's just me. My cats don't understand English as far as I know. And so I am essentially just speaking into the ether. But what I try to do is I, I try to remember that there are people listening to this. If you listen to podcasts the way I do, I put on my headphones and I go for a, a, a jog or I do laundry or I clean the dishes or, you know, whatever. And, or I'm in the car, go for a walk, this kind of thing. And when I'm listening to the podcasts that I listen to, it's a very intimate experience and I have a very intimate relationship with the people that I'm listening to. And uh, I, I don't know, but I think for some of you, I have that relationship with you too. And so I, so I try to imagine that I'm with you right now, wherever you are at, I, I'm there. And when we're talking about emotionally charged and difficult things, or when I'm responding directly to one of your emails, I, I'm trying to imagine that you are listening to me right now, that you're there with me, and that when we are having this communication back and forth, that there's a connection there, that I'm not just yammering on the internet, that I'm actually reaching out to, to you as a person and, and um, having a together experience. <laughs> I'm trying to avoid using new age uh, jibber-jabber at this point. I don't think I've ever said the word the words jibber jabber, which is uh, fun for me to think about. But uh, I, I hope you understand what I'm saying. I hope you understand that I'm saying I, I I try to imagine that you're there, you're with me, you're here, and if you were here, you would talk back at me, and we would have a conversation, and I would, you know, understand you even better than I do already. And so that's why I always love getting emails from you guys because it reminds me even more that you guys are, are out there listening. So thanks for that. Okay, another email here, I think from a patron named April. She's writing in response to the episode I did about police uh, and the Making a Murder documentary. She says, I really like listening to your story about the police officer even though it's very upsetting and almost tragic what happened to your young client, I'm, I'm really sorry that all happened to you and him. So I think this was a patron-only episode, so if you haven't heard it, I, just, I talked a lot about personal experiences with police officers and in my clinical work, and so she's referring to some of that. She goes on to say, I just want to offer my thoughts, being that my dad is a volunteer police officer here in Canada, and I have many friends who entered the police force. I think I met a lot of them because for a while I was considered I, I, I was considering policing as a career. Unfortunately, knowing the many people I do in the police force here, which may be very different in the United States, but I don't know, 
I have to say that the people who tend to enter the police force in the first place seem to have one thing in common, the tendency to see things in very black and white terms. My dad, a wonderful, hardworking family man that he is, tends to oversimplify things into categories of wrong, right, bad, good, etc. I have noticed many friends who went into policing tended to think the same way. Well, that's interesting. I don't know any data. I haven't seen any data on this. I'm guessing it's been researched before, but patron April, April or listener April has a, or she wants to be a patron if she heard the, that episode. So she's saying that according to her anecdotal experience, that police officers tend to have very black and white thinking. And that's interesting. I, I'm, I could see that being a, a character trait for police officers for myself, if you don't know, I, I tend to think in grays. In fact, I hate thinking in black and white. And even when things are black and white, I tend to try to make them gray. <laughs> and so if I were to become a police officer, which I guess I've sort of uh, considered earlier on in my life, barely, I part of the reason why I probably didn't become a police officer is because I worried about being in those gray areas and not knowing what to do. Uh, I would know what my boss would want me to do, and I would think to myself, I don't know if that's exactly the right thing to do morally in this situation. I know what my protocol is, but I also know what is right in the world and in the universe, and, and so this is sort of a gray area. You know, for instance... If I caught someone with heroin and I was a Seattle police officer, I would have to take action. But what's wrong with someone having heroin? Why is that considered a crime? And so so in order to be a police officer, I'm guessing, it really helps to be a black and white thinker because you, you can't necessarily stop and think about these things. You just have to act and and you have to see things in these absolute ways in order to function as a police officer. Having said that, I know police officers who are extremely gray thinkers and will absolutely make judgment calls based on morality as opposed to the legality of something. So there's that. But anyway, thanks for offering your opinion and your experience on that patron April. All right, here's another email from famous patron Lois. Lois writes in and says, one of my pet peeves involving diagnosing, so this is in response to unethical diagnosing episode that I did a couple weeks ago. One of my pet peeves involves diagnosing. When I worked in San Bernardino, the interns actually had a diagnosis, GORK, G-O-R-K, GORK, which stood for God Only Really Knows, GORK, God Only Really Knows. I am positive that was never sent in on any insurance form. When I first came back to Utah, psychiatrists often used the diagnosis POD, which meant possessed of the devil. <laughs> she says, really? Yeah, that's uh, possessed of the devil. Wow. Jiminy crickets. But my real pet peeve was when I was nursing supervisor at a nursing home. All of our patients were obviously going downhill, yet every month we had to show some kind of progress in order to receive payment from the government. 
that meant the director would write things like, the patient can now move their little finger two more degrees than they could last month. Unquote. She says, frustration. So patron Lois has, has worked in the field and understands the questionable diagnosing that goes on in the medical and psychological world. If you don't know this, in order to get paid in medicine and in psychology and therapy, you need a medically necessary diagnosis. You need to have a, a reason for providing treatment. If you spend an hour with a client, there has to be a reason for that. You can't just say, well, because the client wants that. <laughs> there needs to be a reason. And since psychology is still under the medical model, you use medical diagnosing practices. So, for instance, you, you break your arm, you go to the doctor, your doctor diagnoses you, you know, does an assessment and diagnoses you with a broken arm, and then administers a treatment, and then sends a claim to the insurance company. The insurance company looks at the claim and says, and it says, diagnosis, broken arm, and then treatment was this, which cost this amount of money, and then the medical insurance pays the doctor. Well, the same is true in my profession, in the profession of marriage and family therapy. When a client comes to me, I do an assessment, I diagnose, I determine what's, what's wrong and what needs to be treated. I send that diagnosis and the treatment, and the treatment is talk therapy once a week. And I send the claim to the insurance company and I say, here's the diagnosis, here's the reason for the treatment, and here's the treatment for that problem that will help to cure that problem. And the cure is talk therapy. Now, if you're not in my field, you, this might sound quite shocking to you because you might not consider therapy to be part of the medical profession. You might not even know that therapists diagnose people. In fact, some of my clients, when I tell them this, in a, I tell them a much shorter version of this, they're surprised that therapy involves diagnosing at all. And they say, are you so, I've been in therapy before and I've used my insurance before. Are you saying that they diagnosed me? And I would say, yes, they absolutely in all likelihood diagnosed you because that's the only way you can get insurance to pay for things. And, and the clients will say, wow, I never even knew that. I wonder what they diagnosed me with. And so, you know, there's a lot of weird things that happen because of this, you know, because some people come in for therapy and they don't actually qualify for a diagnosis or it's difficult to determine what it is. But in order to get paid, you got to assign a diagnosis pretty quick. You can't just dilly-dally with your assessment. And so a lot of people will cut corners and just make something up or just pick something that kind of fits but not really. And uh, this leads to a lot of unethical diagnosing. All right, what am I going to call this episode? I think I'll just call it listener emails since I didn't really have any particular topic of focus. If you haven't become a patron, please do so. Please, please do so. We love it when people become patrons of the podcast. We are adding new patrons every week, so that feels really good for us when we see those numbers climbing and climbing. We've been accepting patrons for four months now. I think it was the end of September. So let's see, October, November, December, now we're in January. So it's been four months. 
and we have over 200 patrons, which is just awesome. When I started this whole pledge drive back, the patron Patreon thing back in September, I thought, well, you know, maybe five, ten people, maybe we'll see. <laughs> and and so it's been really great to see uh, people signing up. And now that it, we have a taste for it, we're like, oh, we have two hundred. Well, maybe we get four hundred. Maybe we could get a thousand. Maybe we get two thousand. And that's kind of what we're shooting for. Because again, if we get enough people to become patrons, then we could dedicate a lot of time to it. We're de- you know, I th- I think you can tell we're dedicating more and more time to it as time progresses, particularly during this Patreon stuff. But if we get more patrons, uh, sufficient patrons, we could dedicate 10 times more time to it than we already are, which means more in-depth episodes, more interviews, more uh, meaty topics, more exclusive episodes. We could do live shows and parties and, you know, we could do all sorts of things. So that's my vision for the future is to really make this thing a, a, a community, a live, lively community um, where the co-hosts feel like they're getting compensated and everyone feels good about everything. And so if you haven't already, please become a patron. Come on, do it. Do it. Go to your computer. Do it. If I talk in this really annoying voice, will you be compelled? Go to the mouse. Click on your internet browser. Go to patreon.com and search for Psychology in Seattle. Then click the, I don't know, what what's the button there? <laughs> Become a patron button, probably? I don't know. All right, well, that does it for another episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining us out there. Joining us, joining me. And take care of yourself and become a patron because we all deserve it, don't we? You deserve it. I deserve it. Umberto deserves it. And Paulette deserves it. And Lita deserves it. Everyone deserves it. We are all just deserving people, aren't we? All right. 